Hello, and welcome to NANCAST. I'm Jill, your host. There is no denying that all of us are experiencing mental health and wellness challenges, and at times we find ourselves struggling. Many of us aren't feeling supported or cared for by our institution and leaders. The effects of nurse burnout and stress in the NICU result in high levels of absenteeism, low morale, mental fatigue, and exhaustion, which can have detrimental effects on our care to the babies and their families. How can we, as NICU nurses, take responsibility to care for ourselves? How can we turn these discussions into programs, benefits, and institutional and cultural changes for NICU nurses? Joining us today to discuss ways the healthcare system has failed healthcare workers and to provide insight on how we can change our own mental health and well-being is Elizabeth McCutcheon. Elizabeth has been a neonatal nurse practitioner since 2005 at Children's Hospital Colorado. In 2019, she decided to change her career and went back to school to become a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. While she was in school, she began to note some of the ways that healthcare systems have failed healthcare workers. She also realized how fragile individual mental health can be if an individual is faced with difficult situations at work, at home, or both. She has a particular interest in healthcare workers' well-being. Elizabeth now works full-time for Mental Health Partners in Colorado in an outpatient setting. She is also the current president of the Colorado chapter of the American Psychiatric Nurses Association. Let's get right into it. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So mental health recently has become a hot topic today. However, mental health continues to be one of the most misunderstood and neglected public health problems um, in our country today. There's a lot of barriers to receiving mental health care, a lot of stigma, a lot of shame around that. What is our current state of mental health in the U.S.? So not just healthcare workers, but in general. So we'll start from the beginning. So um, in the United States, uh, it it's similar in many ways to what we have around the world. Um, so approximately 5% of adults suffer from depression. And so in total, the world population, so 3.8% of the population suffers from mental health disorder, but adults a little more so. Uh, adults over 60 actually have a higher incidence of uh, mental health disorders. And actually men over the age of approximately 60 have the highest suicide rate in the country. Um, <clears throat> depression is more common in women, as is anxiety. Um, in, around the world, and this is true in this country too, in people between the ages of 15 and 29, uh, suicide is the fourth leading cause of death. And actually, to be honest with you, it may be higher here in the United States. Uh, I think it is. Uh, and a lot of people never get treated. More people struggle with anxiety than depression. <clears throat> and I think that's been exacerbated by the whole COVID uh, pandemic mm -hmm. because people were, they, you're afraid to go anywhere. And they've increased, yeah, 25% since COVID started. Anxiety and depression have increased that much. And approximately one in eight people around the world uh, has a global health disorder, which includes not just anxiety and, and depression because it's a much bigger context than that, particularly in the world in which I'm working now as a psych NP, but it includes bipolar, schizophrenia, eating disorders, personality disorders, et cetera. Um, so there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people who are strong. 
And then in the U.S., 28.1% of adults are experiencing mental illness, which is about 50,000 people, which is huge. Um, and about half of them don't receive treatment, <clears throat> which means over time, for some people, it might get better with anxiety and depression if they gain other tools, for example, go to therapy uh, or just spend time with people who can be supportive. But for a lot of people, it just doesn't get better. Um, 15% of adults have substance use disorder. That was in the last year. Um, and this is from Mental Health America uh, in 2023. So that, that 15% is in 2022. And 93% of those individuals don't get treatment. 4.8% of adults reported serious thoughts of suicide. Um, and that is it's a pretty large number when you really think about it. It's higher among adults who identify as two or more, more races. So there, so there's probably um, some ramifications of racial bias in this country that impacts. 16% of youth report major depression. They did in the last year. And 60% of youth with depression do not get treatment. 11% uh, of adults in this country have mental illness or not insured. Uh, which it makes it really hard. I mean, here in community mental health, we have some self-pay, but it's expensive. Um, and in this country, we only have one uh, mental health provider for every 350 individuals. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, I will say we have, I have psychiatrists here in the group who are carrying 350 patients, but it means that, you know, if a crisis happens, you can't see somebody for a oh, long yeah. time because you're booked. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, it was very eye-opening for myself. Um, I teach pediatric clinical, and to see the shift of the unit being filled with mental health pediatric patients, um, especially highlighted after COVID, um, and you know the struggles and the barriers that they were having in order just to receive treatment, where it drove them to go to the hospital so they could get treatment, yep. um, and that would ensure it. So there's definitely an issue here in the U.S. that needs to be changed. Yes. Um, and I, I think that, like you said, COVID just brought everything out uh, to, to the forefront. We, we had this prior to, but now just COVID just highlighted um, all of the mental health issues that, you know, we're experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. And it is really hard for kids because we, we don't have enough uh, people who focus on kids and adolescents. So. We've heard all the challenges and the barriers to mental health in the U.S. and, and across the world. So now you take in healthcare workers um, into that, and we're struggling. Um, you know, we have the role, we take on the role of caretaker, um, and we often do that without the ability or the moment to take care of ourselves. Um, and this is just leading to so much more burnout and stress um, and poses a whole different challenge to being um, in healthcare. So what about the mental health and what is the statistics out there about mental health in healthcare workers? Um, so there was a study that was conducted early, somewhat early in COVID across 65 nations. And uh, people who worked in healthcare had moderate depression of about 22%. Anxiety was at 20%, 22%, and PTSD was at 22%. And PTSD, a big piece of that is manifestations of anxiety and depression go with it. 
So, so that's significantly higher than the general population. Um, American Nurse did a survey in 2021, uh, and 17% of nurses had uh, a depressing, depressive disorder, and that's higher in women than in men. Having, let me also say that many of the surveys that we conduct here in the United States, many more women respond than men. So the numbers may be skewed in part because men just don't respond to it. <laughs> uh, so 21% of uh, nurses, and this nurse study was uh, included uh, RNs and APNs. Um, so 21% had anxiety disorder. The more experience that the respondent had, the less likely it was that they would have anxiety. So, um, as you know, as we age, we gain some skills. And the other piece that happens is, I think, as you gain more knowledge, you don't maybe second guess yourself quite as much as you do in the first few years of your career. Um, and thirty-eight percent of individuals felt sad, down, and depressed uh, for greater than two weeks in the previous year. Um, and 20% reported that they, that they get the support they need. However, that number is declining. So fewer than 20% feel like they have the support that they need. Um, among other health care workers, there was a survey of intensive care staff and the response rate on this was 30%. Uh, nurses were 50% of the respondents and, uh, 70% were women. So again, a lot of women. Uh, so 50% of those individuals screen positive for anxiety, 30% for severe depression, which is really a problem. Uh, 40% screen positive for PTSD and just under 30% uh, had gotten to a point where they were engaging in potentially harmful alcohol use. And, you know, that's one of the things that we, you know, like we'll talk about, oh God, when I get home tonight, I'm going to have to have a drink. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, it's not the one, it becomes the one, the two, then it becomes the three. And, and, uh, and for women, that's, you know, it's alcohol is harder on us than it is on men. Um, there was a study of university faculty, staff, and healthcare workers in a Midwest public university, uh, with an academic medical center. And there was a mental health screening that was done 85% women, only 21% of these individuals were clinicians, but 26 positive, 26% positive for depression, 37 for anxiety and 14% for PTSD. And then there was a study that was done among maternal and neonatal healthcare workers uh, between May and June of 2020, and 66% of those individuals reported burnout, uh, and 73% reported that they felt like burnout had increased among their peers. So uh, it has this sort of, you know, it ends up having sort of this community effect when people around you are also feeling burned out. Oh yeah, you're in a in your pod or wherever you are at work on your unit, and one person's like a Debbie Downer and is complaining can totally yes. bring down the vibe of the unit. Um, and misery loves company. We all know that, and it, yep. it's it's great com coping mechanism, I guess, to debrief on your day. Um, but you need to bring in some some positivity a yes. little bit. So, I mean, I can see, it would be interesting to see you know, the fluctuations of mental health in, in units, yes. um, depending on what staff is working that day, um, <laughs> too, because, you know, we all know those Debbie Downers on our unit um, that can really change the way you're thinking. In sharing that research that was pre-COVID, 
but we all know that those mental health challenges still existed and probably were even highlighted during COVID. So what is the research um, that's how our mental health is faring during COVID and the effects of COVID um, on healthcare workers' mental health? So one of the things that happened to healthcare workers during COVID was that we were revered and maligned at the same time. Because we all can remember, uh, what was it, at 8.30 or 7.30? I guess it was like at 7.30 or something. Change of shift. That people were out there howling. Um, and, you know, I engaged in howling. It was lots of fun. And I was trying, you know, I wanted to support my peers. I mean, you know, so. Um, and so individuals on the front line often were seen as heroes. And at the same time, you know, risking their own health. Um, but they were, but healthcare workers were having to deal with the same struggles as everybody else. I mean, what are you going to do with your kids when they're not in school and adjusting to places being shut down? And there were healthcare workers who were losing their jobs because, or being laid off secondary to closing down, uh, you know, non, uh, or elective surgeries because we had to be concerned about patients coming in who were sick. Um, and then there was the adjustment of, you know, our going to online meetings, just like everybody else. Or having online appointments with our providers if somebody in our family was ill, which was huge. Um, and we had the additional fear that we were going to bring home the disease to our families. So for some people, um, particularly because this was a potentially fatal illness, you know, you're afraid that if you brought it home, you might give it to your kids or you might give it to your partner or you might give it to your parents who are older. Um, and if then if healthcare workers were seen someplace other than a hospital, we're at risk of being treated like a pariah because we could be a carrier of the disease that nobody wanted. So there you are in your scrubs and everyone's like, you know, what are you doing here? You're going to make us all sick. And there was then the, then there was a lot of controversy that came about. So there are mask mandates and the visitation policies changed, which was helpful in some ways and not so helpful in others, particularly for example, in places like the NICU where we were separating moms from babies because they, you know, if mom had COVID, baby couldn't be with them. And then when vaccines became available, a lot of healthcare workers were frustrated that everyone wasn't getting the vaccine because particularly if you worked in intensive cares or for those of us who even worked in the neonatal intensive care, parents were getting COVID because they hadn't gotten vaccinated. And we're like, why didn't you get vaccinated? Um, and then there were healthcare workers who were upset that they're being told they should get vaccinated. So so on the one hand, you know, we were considered the greatest thing. And then on the other hand, we were hardcore in the midst of all the controversy, which was hard. It was really hard. Mm -hmm. Dealing with all of the stress at work and then going home to even more stress with everybody. Everybody was such at a high level um, of anxiety and tension. It was hard. And you never really had, as a healthcare worker, any release. Because right. it was constant. constant. Yes. Yeah, it wasn't stopping. It, you know, you know, if you have a terrible car accident or something or a bus accident, you got a lot of people who are coming in for a short period of time. But this, it just kept going and going. And then you had less staff because if someone had COVID, they had to be out the ex an extended period of time. So then you're, you know, working um, with more critical patients with less staff. Yep. Um, less like, you know, you talked about family in the NICU, they weren't allowed to visit or only one at a time. So it was less, um, parent uh, interaction. Cause oftentimes the parents would help with care, help with feeding and 
that that wasn't available. Um, yep. During COVID. a lot of pressure. Yeah, and a lot of angry families because they couldn't visit um, yep. their their patients. So that was a whole another um, area of stress that you were dealing with um, as a healthcare provider too. Yep. So there was only so much pizza that they could throw at us to <laughs> make us feel better. Um, and you know, I, I they didn't they didn't have a clue of what to do to help us, but. Um, that was their answer. And as you can clearly see, as we're talking now, uh, pizza wasn't enough. No, definitely. Food does not solve all problems. No, no. For a minute, for a minute, if we had time to get pizza um, for, for a break after working um, in shortages, might have helped for a minute, but that's about it. We were just talking about pizza and making it a joke, but in reality, it almost feels like the healthcare system failed healthcare workers. They didn't provide a lot of support for us during those really stressful trying times and continue to be very stressful trying times now. What was the meaning behind that? So I know you said that they failed us, but you know, what are your thoughts on that? So I think that the healthcare system failed healthcare workers because we have known about the impact of epidemics and pandemics for a long time. Um, there's research dating back to 1980s when uh, HIV and AIDS was increasing to epidemic levels. And, and we didn't know actually what the cause of it was. So as healthcare workers, people were scared to take care of individuals who had AIDS because you knew it was fatal, but you didn't know, we didn't know how it spread. Um, and those individuals, those individuals struggled with anxiety and depression. We know from uh, studies looking at the people who took care of patients with SARS, Ebola, and MERS, that they also had increased PTSD and anxiety. Um, there was, a, interestingly enough, a meta-analysis that was done in the Netherlands about work-related incidents. So something happens to a patient and what that means for the, for the team and individuals. And uh, there was a, you know, they knew that PTSD would increase, anxiety and depression would increase, and that people would leave the profession. So, I mean, just put that in the context of, okay, so you're a provider or a nurse who's taking care of 10 patients and nine of them have died. And that's a struggle. Um, we keep asking healthcare workers to do more with less, but that, you know, you can only push that so far. Um, and the other thing is we haven't been teaching people starting in nursing school, starting in med school, starting in PT school, how do you build a support system or plan to manage your well-being? Um, we've not been checking in with people regularly to make sure that they're doing okay. Um, and we still haven't addressed things like bullying and incivility, which make work environments that much harder. Um, and it's interesting because at one stage back in around 2005, we did have uh, we, the country was working on a plan for pandemics. There was a lot of energy focused on it, went on for about three years, which did create the, the large, uh, reserve of ventilators and, uh, face masks, et cetera. But then that sort of fell to the wayside because there were other crises that were going on. And so we left ourselves completely unprepared for pandemic. Um, and healthcare workers paid a price for that. Oh, yeah. To not, you know, you're in a pandemic. You don't know how it's spread. You know, the only thing you can do is protect yourself with the proper PPE. And we didn't have any or we were told to reuse it and put it in a little bag um, with your name on it and get it your next shift. So that just adds to 
um, everybody's level of anxiety. Um, and, and you do feel the health, the healthcare team or the administration where you're working doesn't value you because they can't even give you the supplies that you need. Um, and it's not fancy. This is PPE, right. masks and gowns. That's all we're asking for. Um, so you can feel kind of that you're not supported um, or valued. Yeah. And those masks, we've been told our whole lives, you only use them once. I mean, mean, that started in nursing school. You only use the mask once. And then suddenly you're not using it once. You know, it was being sent someplace to be sterilized and given back to you. If you were lucky, some of us put it in a brown bag with their name on it, lunch bag, and went back the next day. They put it back on. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. We talked about how our healthcare systems have failed us in a way during COVID. Um, Powell has healthcare organizations done to support us? So we'll talk positive. Um, What have they done or what have they implemented in to support healthcare workers, their mental health, and just to increase the overall positivity um, in units? So there, there are a few examples that are out there. They're not a ton, uh, unfortunately, that have been published. Um, Columbia University created a program called COPE Columbia, which became, came out of the Department of Psychiatry. And oftentimes the Department of Psychiatry is involved in, you know, programs to move well-being forward. And so their program, they created uh, peer support and one-on-one support. Uh, they provided a lot of uh, educational sessions and psychoeducation, which Psychoeducation can be very important. I mean, it's something I do with my patients all the time in terms of explaining to people what exactly is depression, what is anxiety, uh, just so people have a better understanding because people sometimes get stress confused with anxiety um, and helping people to understand that distinction. Um, And they did provide resources to individuals um, to help them manage stress uh, to address fear, because of course ev- many people were fearful, um, and promote well-being. Um, and they, the other thing that uh, Cope Columbia did is in 2021 they instituted a chief well-being officer, um, who, and then they created a well-being leadership group, so that that became a big focus of the organization. Um, impressive. Yes, it is, and there are more and more groups that are doing that, um, and I think. Again, I th- you have to make a concerted effort to f- focus on well-being because it's really easy to go down the negative rabbit hole. Um, the University of uh, California in Davis also uh, set up a clinician health and well-being program that was actually started pre-COVID, started in 2017, and that was started by uh, the Department of Psychiatry. And that was in ge- they tr- cr- created to support the well-being and health of clinicians at the organizational level. Um, and the, it was created in response to physician burnout because physician burnout has sort of been on the, you know, in face, you know, in our face for quite some time. Um, and so some of the things it did is that it identified and engaged physician faculty and nursing, uh, with psychology staff who were interested and knowledgeable about the workforce wellness. Uh, they created a six month fellowship program to train support individuals to support others and to move organizational change forward. Um, I think fellowship programs are, are stupendous because it's an intensive where you can learn new skills. And it was a teach the, you know, it was a 
train the trainer sort of thing. So then you could go into your own unit and support your team. Um, and it's so much nicer to talk to somebody that knows what you've been going through yep. that can support you and understand the little niche that we have in the healthcare team, especially like you said, if it could be a fellowship in someone in the NICU. So they understand the stress and the experiences that we feel and that we experience um, specific to the NICU. I have to say Minnesota Medical Center set up a program that I love. It was created with the Department of Anesthesiology. And I have to say, departments of anesthesiology are often on the cutting edge. Um, and then psychiatry. And they call it uh, Battle Buddies and Anticipate, Plan, Deter. <laughs> and so Battle Buddies actually comes out of the Army. Um, and it's where you're, you know, early in your career, you're assigned to someone that you stay in touch with. And it's not therapy. It is just checking in. Okay, so where are you emotionally today? And, and it's not necessarily every day, but um, okay, we're going to have to face this particular thing. What ideas should we come up with, with how we might handle this? Um, what's hardest for you? What are you worrying about? And then they also had faculty from the psychiatry department who were there to, su to support what's called anticipate, uh, plan, and deter. So the anticipation was, okay, I'm going into this situation. What might I feel? What might be the triggers? And then the plan was, okay, so how do I manage that? Um, so that going forward, uh, you know, I won't necessarily be completely overwhelmed. And then uh, the deter piece was uh, you could involve someone like a psychiatrist or whatever to try to address something is becoming bigger than you or bigger than you can manage. Then you could talk to a psychologist or psychiatrist who could help you manage that right then so that then you could deter it from keep coming back into your life and haunting you because that's the other thing you have to worry about is ptsd and something keeps coming back um you know you're having nightmares you're having intrusive thoughts so deterring that from happening i like that i think that can be something that everybody can apply um when they're in a situation that they anticipate that's going to be anxiety provoking or stressful um that you have, okay, this is how I'm going to feel. And this is how I'm going to try to react in that moment. Um, and the deter portion, you could have a colleague or a coworker to, to talk it through, debrief, whatever, um, you know, the situation at hand and help to, you know, how you're going to approach this situation. So I think yeah. that's a really great um, tool to have. Yeah. I think that could be used in a lot of, a lot of places and particularly in intensive cares or ERs where you're faced with a lot. Um, because it, the, I do think it's important to try to prevent things like PTSD from happening, uh, because that's, I mean, that's so hard to work through and it can invade your life so pervasively. Um, and it impacts your family, impacts your friends, you withdraw. So preventing that is really helpful. Talking about the, uh, organizations that have implemented mental health and wellness programs, what are your thoughts on how healthcare workers themselves can do to support their well-being and mental health? So I think one of the things is to have self-awareness. So for example, part of that, uh, that as I was talking about the battle buddies is, um, you know, being cognizant before you enter a situation about what's going on with you so that you can manage that. Um, so checking with yourself, you know, how am I feeling? What am I thinking right now? Where am I with my mental health? Because the reality may be that you were someone who entered into healthcare uh, already with an anxiety disorder or already with 
uh, depression or like me, you know, I'm bipolar. And, and so, you know, where are you on your spectrum? Um, are you depressed? You're anxious? Are you tired? Are you hungry? Are you unmotivated? Um, so I think that, that it's really important to do those check-ins. Um, and I think it's also important for us to recognize we're humans and we can be so hard on ourselves, which makes things worse. Uh, so self-compassion is incredibly important and providing yourself with a little bit of grace, which is, uh, there was somebody who taught me about that. And I have to say, I feel like it made a big difference for me in my career. Um, the other piece is figuring out what your self-care thing is. You know, you all the time you'll say, you should do some yoga, you should meditate, you should take a bath, you should do this, you should do that. Um, and and all those things are great. Meditate, learning how to meditate in the midst of a crisis is difficult. So figuring out something that works for you. So it may be something you enjoy, go out and ride your bike or working at a food bank. Um, or it it may be none of those things but it's something that's quick and easy. You know, maybe it's just literally, you know, putting your hands together and pressing them. So at that no moment, you're just paying attention to your hands, take a deep breath and go forward. Um, I do think that breathing is probably the easiest thing that people can do for self-care because we all, you have to do it whether you like it or not. I mean, <laughs> you know, you can only hold your breath for so long. Um, putting 10 minutes of exercise into your day can make a huge difference with regards to um, depression and anxiety. In that study of nurses, 31% uh, of nurses and 36% of APRNs were meeting the physical requirements or recommendations of 150 minutes per week. And I'll admit, I'm not, I'm not one of them who's meeting that. I mean, I'm, I'll be perfectly honest. <laughs> it can be hard to do sometimes. Uh, learn to pri prioritize your own health over patients. So 75 prioritize our patient's health over our own health. And oh, yeah. that means, for example, we stay late at work, we come into early to work, we don't exercise, we miss meals, we don't go to the bathroom, and yet we need to do all those things. Uh, trying to create boundaries between yourself and your personal life. Uh, you know, we can become extremely enmeshed in patients' lives. There are nurses, for example, who, you know, become Facebook friends with their patients. They um, are following patients for many years afterwards. And I, and I suppose if you can do that post them leaving, but if something happens to that patient over time, it can be devastating and that can take a real toll on your mental health. Um, eating well, nurses and APRNs are not the greatest of that. <laughs> no. Particularly getting vegetables and fruits into our diet. Um, sleep is huge. It's huge. So, uh, 40% of the people among that and that nursing survey, 40% uh, got six hours of sleep or less in a 24-hour period, which is not enough. And I will say the greatest thing that's happened to me since being becoming a psych NP is I work days only, and I get between eight to nine hours of sleep a day. I don't yawn anymore. I mean, it's I mean, spectacular. It's spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> my mental health, I don't think, with regards to my bipolar, I don't think I've ever been so stable in my life. Um, which is wonderful. And then the, the, the other important thing to note is that non-Hispanic whites get the most sleep. So, you know, among people of color, they are struggling with getting enough sleep even more than those of us who are white. Um, and that's unfortunate. And 12.8% of nurses and APRNs who filled out that survey uh, have fallen asleep at the wheel, which is, is, is dangerous. 
Yeah. There is a positive psychology tool called Three Good Things. I spoke about it at the NAN conference. I'll, talk, I'll say again, it's an app uh, that you can go in and every day write down three good things. And it has been studied and studied and studied, and it really does have an impact on people's uh, mental health. And then Duke has a long list. Uh, they have a website that you can go that has a bunch of tools that people can use that are very helpful. Um, so I encourage people to use them. I think, yeah, I think map you know, using apps is great. There's one that's called eMoods, where for those people who may have bipolar or depression, et cetera, can cycle where they are in their moods. Uh, but self-awareness, you know, what's going on inside, in your soul? Yeah, you're right. Self-reflection, self-awareness. I am a night shift nurse, so I don't meet any of the criteria that you say that we should do. <laughs> And so, like, I have no one to blame but myself when I have high stress and anxiety because I don't get enough sleep. I don't eat right. And I sometimes don't exercise because there's just not enough time in the day. Yep. Um, And it's very important to be self-aware and know when it's time to say no. Like we talked about plates being like you have to say no. You have to protect you time. Um, because if you don't, how are you going to be able to take care of your patients, patients, families? It's just, it's, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. And I will say the great news with exercise is that there's a lot of research coming out about microdosing. So you don't have to sit down and do 30 minutes at a time. If you have 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, grab it. Microdosing. I'll remember that. I'll make myself <laughs> feel better. I exercise, even if it's just walking the dog, you know, yep. it's, it's getting, it's getting outside. Yes. Um, something else that's really important. So yes, I still love the battle buddies concept. I think that's um, perfect. I think about battle buddies too is, you know, whenever you're a nurse at the bedside or an APRN and you have to do something difficult, everything's always better with a buddy, right? Yes. So I, I think that if, if you can try to, if you don't have that program in your institution, if you can try to maybe kind of develop something like that, um, that'd be very easy because it would be with your own staff. It wouldn't require a lot of resources yep. and can be very helpful. I, I know like debriefing is something the hospital wants us to do. And we don't always do that after a code. It's, you know, or a death patient dies. Okay. You have no time to process it because you're picking up another assignment. Yeah. And we're not kind, we're not kind to each other in the, you know, in the realm of mental health. Nurses. Yes. Yes. Um, APRNs, healthcare workers, where, you know, we beat ourselves up and um, we don't know we're being unkind, but we are. And we do need to give ourselves and each other grace, like you said. Absolutely. That's a very important um, concept to take to heart um, and to understand. Yes. Absolutely. Grace is hugely important. So, I, um, you know, one of the reasons I like Battle Buddies is because I was in the military and there is this sort of camaraderie that exists in the military. The important thing to recognize with the battle buddies is that it's not therapy. It is truly checking in with your peers, you know, and saying, how are you doing? Because one of the things is that sometimes someone else will see that you're in trouble before you do. And that's one way for us to take care of each other is we can say, you know, it looks like you're really having a tough time here. Because sometimes we're not willing to admit we're having a really tough time. So if our peers are there to say, hey, I think we need to have a discussion. Let me see how I can support you. That can make a real difference in how each of us moves forward. 
I think that's a great way to end this. And you've given us so much to think about, um, so much that we can bring to our units to help, hopefully, besides pizza, uh, increase <laughs> our um, mental health and well-being. So thank you so much for all of the input and knowledge that you've given us. And hopefully we can take that to our units. Thank you so much. Make sure you never miss an episode of NANCAST by subscribing now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks for your support and letting us into your ears. Have a great day. <laughs>